Global Sport Matters presents, in collaboration with Columbia University Sports Management, the Sports Professors Podcast, where Professors Kenneth Shropshire and Scott Rosner discuss the 101 on what happened in sports business. Hello, and welcome to the Sports Professors Podcast. I'm Scott Rosner, Academic Director and Practice Professor at Columbia University in the city of New York, along with my friend and former colleague, Ken Shropshire, who is the CEO of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Ken, how are you doing today? Doing great, Scott. I'm, uh, as you were saying, the Sports Sports, easy for me to say, Sports Professors Podcast. I was thinking the arrogance of the title of that, like, I guess there'd be some uh, apostrophe or something if we were the only ones or something. Like right, and you know, I don't think we're claiming Ken that we're the only ones. <laughs> I, I, this is this is not the you know, it's not called the only sports professors podcast. It's just we happen to be two professors who focus on the sports industry. There are many others who do it extraordinarily well. Even we better. are just two. <laughs> even better, yeah. No, no, no question. Who, who could put this podcast to shame, right? Um, if given the opportunity. So, uh, but it's it's good to be back and and a lot happening uh, on. We've got among the topics and things we'll we'll talk about today are the college football coaching changes. We are in college football uh, season on the back end. And tis the season for hiring and firing. Uh, We'll also get into the Major League Baseball lockout, which is uh, early on in what is likely to be a fairly lengthy process. And we'll talk about the labor dispute and what all of that means. And we'll talk about Peng Peng Shuai uh, and the fallout from the uh, all the situation involving her. This is the the former top doubles player uh, from China who has, you know, really been at at the forefront of a lot of uh, controversy right now. And and we'll get into that as well. So, Ken, what's been what's been on your mind? You know, besides from the University of Michigan defeating the Ohio State University (laughs) first time. Very, very cordial of you to say the Ohio State University (laughs) in times like this. No additional disrespect required, right? <laughs> um, now I had my Stanford Cardinal, uh, uh, quite the, the dismal season. But, but you know, w- what I have been watching, the, the business side of things, as you mentioned up front, the coaches that have been moving around. So Brian Kelly, uh, Lincoln Riley, those are the two two major ones. But, but there's a lot of activity that's going to be underway. And, and those are especially curious uh, because both of the coaches were at great programs and both of them were, well, arguably Notre Dame, Oklahoma was, was, uh, we don't know where they would have ended up uh, in the, in the end, but Notre Dame, you know, chance, you know, remote at national championship. And so, look, you're, you, you, you're so right. why is, is how unique is this, that these guys move from top program to top program? incrementally better you one could argue and you might even argue you know Oklahoma to USC is not necessarily incrementally better you might argue that Notre Dame to LSU is not incrementally better it's a, sort of a, a different place yeah really interesting moves the typical moves that we see are moving up the ladder right, right. the horiz- the horizontal moves don't happen very often. And so even if you think about like a Nick Saban going from LSU, but then he went to the Miami Dolphins and then back 
to uh, to Alabama. And remember, prior to being at LSU, he was at Michigan State. So he has, uh, you know, theoretically, at least an upgrade from Michigan State to LSU in status of program. And I'm sorry, from, from MSU to LSU in status of program. And then, you know, wins a national championship, gives the NFL a shot. It doesn't work. He comes back to Alabama. The Brian Kelly move is interesting. Uh, you know, Notre Dame fans, uh, you know, mixed reactions, uh, some very, very unhappy. I think everyone's unhappy about the timing of the move from Notre Dame to LSU, whether you agree with it or not, um, you know, and, and think it was the right career move or wrong career move. It's not really for anyone else to judge, is it? I mean, that's Brian Kelly's move and Brian yeah. Kelly's decision. It, clearly for, you know, for what is a substantial raise, um, you know, salary for him at Notre Dame, uh, not public because it's a private institution, unlike his contract at LSU and Lincoln Riley's contract at Oklahoma, you know, fully public because they are public institutions. So, but think about Brian Kelly and salary thought to be somewhere in the five to $7 million range. And the contract at LSU is going to be somewhere between a, you know, percentage wise, you know, a 50 and 90% raise for right. him. And yeah. so yeah, nothing, 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 those nothing, ways, nothing think, of it, <laughs> think of it in the straight financial terms, how many people wouldn't do that? Um, Jack Swarbrick's the athletic director at Notre Dame, longstanding AD, um, at his press conference and now Kelly never gave us an opportunity to match. So it wasn't like we even uh, had that opportunity. So it seems to be a decision by the coach to, uh, to seek just an opportunity that he believes will be, will be better for him and, and for his family and uh, a new challenge. And we, we got to, you brought the dollars in. I guess we do have to talk about the atmosphere that was established by Mel Tucker's contract at, at Michigan state. Once the announcement or leakage that he had a, what is it, 95 million over 10? That's exactly right. Uh, that became the new uh, stalking horse in terms of, of number. And the best way to get a new number close to the best new number is to move move to another institution. Um, so so there's probably some element of that. But I, but I think I think you're right. It's it's opportunity, however you characterize that. It's it's money. Um and I don't know, maybe Lincoln Riley is geography. Some, I don't know about, I don't know, South Bend to uh, Baton Rouge. I don't know about that. <laughs> I, you know, let's not say bad. I would say mediocre to mediocre. Terms of, <laughs> in terms of your markets. Yeah. Well, but, certainly, certainly from a, you know, more freedom to probably do things and, and, and who you can recruit at, at LSU, but it's a harder schedule, right? I mean, at, at Notre Dame, you know, you're making your own schedule. It's 12 games as an independent. It's, it's do what you want to do. Um, you know, at, in the SEC, it's not that way, right? You pick your, your non-conference games, but then your conference schedule is, uh, is set and it's challenging, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's a, definitely a step up in the level of competition. Uh, let there be no doubt about that, that they will face on an ongoing basis as the, as the, as a coaching staff. Yeah. To, to me, the, uh, of these moves, the, the one that has the greatest upside, I mean, and in, in in not just because of the lower, lower, most recent status of, of USC is Lincoln Riley's move to, to USC. 
And the whole idea of, as USC used to do, controlling the, the Southern California recruitment space, you know, you, you got to uh, uh, kick Chip, Chip Kelly's ass and, and San Diego State. I mean, you know, there, there's, there's some sense of um, there's territory to be uh, taken back over. And it's, you know, USC used to, there is a, there is a history and a legacy that USC has that makes it a possibility of greater success, um, that it can be the old uh, John McKay, uh, John Robinson kind of, kind of space. I mean, it's, you got to go back quite a way, you know, Pete Carroll success days, that sort of thing. So, so there is something, something there and it is something to, to, to build to, and it's not an impossibility. Uh, so all of these moves are, you know, potential national championship jobs, but, but they all require a different version of work. But I think the, the biggest sketch pad is, is down there at USC, depending on what the institution's leadership is, is really planning to do. But you don't spend that much money unless you really plan to, to be successful. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you, you look, the college coach in any sport from fencing to football is everything in college football. And the most important individual in your program is the head coach, more so than at, at any other level in any other sport. And if the coach uh, is great, typically more often than not, the team will be great. Right. And, and then the opposite is true as well. And, the, and that kind of permeates a lot of different things throughout the program. The move for USC and the move for LSU, I would argue, are actually both fairly low risk moves for the athletic director, even though the salaries are obviously quite high. And what I mean by that is if you're Mike Bone, so Mike Bone comes to USC from University of Cincinnati, where he's a very successful run, really well-respected, young AD, the most important hire that he's going to make at USC is the head football coach. And can you resurrect uh, what has been, you know, a, a somewhat dormant program, uh, but traditionally very strong, hasn't been good in, in 15 years or so, right? Um, you know, on a, on a real nationally competitive basis. But you know it's the sleeping giant kind of thing. And if the sleeping giant awakens, then all sorts of revenue can flow from that. So for Mike Bone, you can't, make that higher without taking some level of risk, right? Because there's a risk that the coach doesn't work out, but my gosh, it's a lot safer to take Lincoln Riley, who's been extraordinarily <laughs> successful at Oklahoma than it is to take an up and coming coach from another program. So I think that's, that's, a, that's, that's certainly, I think is what, you know, it's a, it's a safer move despite the amount of money at USC. Now don't get me wrong. If this doesn't work out, Mike Bone is, probably not going to be the athletic director at USC for a very long time. You can't throw out this amount of money at a football coach and have it not work. And, you know, ultimately, uh, and ultimately think that you're going to be the AD there permanently, but he's swinging for the fences. Well, and, and Lincoln Riley has a little more runway than, than Brian Kellett. It's, you've got to understand there's some rebuilding that has to take place. So you're, you're paying this guy at that top number. 
you know, I don't know. Nobody's going to ask me which job I would take, but but, but I'd have to go. Well, I know which job you would take. Yeah. <laughs> you don't think I want to be down? I like the you know Cajun food and all that kind of stuff. I I could do some time down in, in Louisiana. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. There's no question. But you know, you you get this is this would be a, a sort of a hometown son. Right. Returning, uh, you know, to to the native land uh, to leave the, you know, the, the neighborhood school to to glory. Teaching 1970s techniques. Yes, that's that's correct. That's correct. that's right. Um, so, you know, the the other move, you know, the Brian Kelly move uh, is is, I think, interesting and more interesting in, in a lot of ways just because of the timing of it and where his team is in the season. And, you know, Notre Dame has a very good shot as we as we sit here this afternoon, the weekend before the Friday before the conference championship weekends. They have a legitimate chance of making the college football playoff. And one, those chances can be hindered because of the just of the loss of the coach. They don't play this weekend. Um, You know, they're on a they're on a bye. They're kind of sitting at home rooting for certain outcomes in other games. But the college football playoff committee can consider the the coaching situation in making its decision. So, you know, that is one that we will certainly keep our eye on. Um, You know, it's, you know, in a way, Ken, I was, I was talking about this with someone else yesterday and, you know, this doesn't feel right. Right. None of this feels good. You don't like the idea of Brian Kelly breaking up by text with his team. You don't like the idea of uh, not, it, you know, part of what I've, I've been trying to figure out. It doesn't feel good, right? It's, 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 yeah, it is the why of doing it at this point. What happened to the end of the season? I, I, will, I will tell you, one of my uh, most memorable football moments, if I may, I don't do this all the time, was uh, Jack Christensen uh, getting fired at Stanford. And it was the, uh, the, the couple of days, I don't know when they told him, before the big game. And he brought us all down on the, the practice field after we were in the stadium. And he says, you know, for all you seniors, uh, this is your last game, but I want you to know this is my last game too. And many, not me, started bawling. You know, it was really an emotional kind of, uh, kind of moment. Uh, anyway, I was, I was a senior. You know, I thought maybe that would prompt him into allowing me to play some. It didn't. <laughs> but, but it was this... Uh, you know, it was done. The, it was done the right. The guy's getting fired, and it was done the right way. Uh, maybe, and, and to some extent, yeah, you know, I have one. You know, couldn't you do it after the game? But the motivational thing of the, the last game and that sort of stuff. Um, but the idea of, you know, as you're trying to get into the championship, you're you're at this moment. You all these guys you've recruited, sort of this this whole thing. It just it just does not sit right. But in the end, my assumption is the word was about to get out and we have to do something. And, and this is the best way to do it. Given the circumstance we've gotten ourselves in. Clearly there would have been a leak. This would not have been kept a secret, uh, you know, for, for very long. That said, I think what motivates it at this time is the looming early de- recruiting deadline. Right. And so you've got this upcoming uh, date on the schedule for, uh, for commitments. And it is, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about, um, that recruiting and the recruiting calendar has, has driven some of this. I think there's truth to that, 
Um, you know, I also think it had a, played a role in Notre Dame naming Marcus Freeman to be the head coach. He was the defensive coordinator uh, at the institution early on in his career there, just as I believe his second year uh, at the university, but really well respected. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's an interesting timing piece for him. I think the college football playoff could play a role in that have played a role in that as well. Um, but as I was talking about with, with someone else yesterday, it, it, this goes back to like the Hyman Roth godfather moment, right? This is the business we have chosen. Right. Right. And that, 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 that says, that says, it yeah, that really is. And, and that's the nature of the business today, which is very different from the business of uh, 1976 with Jack Christensen resigning and, and, and trying to figure out what's next. This, this is, it's so much money and there's so much, more to um, getting the right guy and getting the guy, right guy when you can get him before he goes somewhere else. So, so Scott, we'll, we'll keep an eye on this, but uh, a couple other big things I know you're looking at, um, I don't know, MLB or, or uh, the, the world and, and what we should do with sports in China. Yeah, they're both, they're both compelling. Uh, you know, I think we take the, the bigger, more important story first, um, which is the, the Peng Shuai uh, fallout and, and everything that's that's gone on there. And and so, you know, uh, Ken, you want to give a brief recap of, of what has happened in, in that one? And we can, can kind of talk about the follow-up. Yeah, well, what's interesting is, you know, there's there's always been this kind of, uh, dicey understanding of what sports should do in terms of, of human rights issues that take place in, in China. I mean, starting with the, um, the Beijing Summer Olympics back, not the one coming up, um, in terms of, of sweatshops in Tibet and uh, the treatment of Uyghurs, which is still an issue that's, that's going on. Uh, what kind of participation should there be? What kind of protest should athletes um, be involved in and that sort of thing? Um, you know, fast forward to where we are Today, here's an individual athlete who, um, via social media, um, uh, asserts that she was sexually assaulted by uh, one of the leaders in, in uh, Chinese sports, who's also a, a big political leader. Um, and so the question became uh, kind of twofold in, in some ways. First, is she okay? Uh, where is she? Uh, and then second, what should global sport do, especially the WTA and, and the Olympic movement? We'll just, just say it broadly like that. You know, in the, in the, in the interim of, of kind of these conversations, there, there have been some uh, video postings made available, I mean, seemingly by the, the government of her, uh, you know, kind of proof of life, like a better way to phrase it. And also, um, the proclamation of some conversations by the International Olympic Committee with her, and them having a comfort level where the, the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association, not having comfort with where she is and, and her safety. Uh, and, and then WTA takes the, the even bolder step of saying, and because of this, we're canceling all of our events in, in China. Um, you know, to me, the WTA has, has really stepped up um, uh, very aggressively, very appropriately. I don't know some of the numbers they talk about that they, they are sacrificing a billion dollars. I don't know if that's accurate, uh, but the idea that there is some financial sacrifice, that there is a statement being made until there's some assurance of her safety, I think that that's what's really become 
important. And what what have your thoughts been as it's been going forward? Yeah. You know, I applaud the WTA for taking a stand here and for, you know, regardless of um, how this comes out and let's hope that, uh, that Peng Shui is obviously safe and, and healthy and, and okay, but they have to be applauded for taking a stand despite the financial costs that are likely to be incurred as a result. So, you know, the, the simple way that I can think about this is that they want to be on the right side of history a, B, I don't think that the financial costs is necessarily in the short term going to be what they are claiming. It's not inconsequential. This is, this is, there's real financial costs. But given the reality of you know, COVID and you know, the travel to China, it to me seemed unlikely that they were going to host many, if not any, of those tournaments in the country this year. So, you know, are you sacrificing money? Yeah, but I think the sacrifice, those tournaments were gonna be rescheduled or canceled anyway. Um, The bigger thing to me is what the long-term impact is going to be. And you need to look no further than the NBA and the fallout from the Daryl Morey tweet uh, about the protests in Hong Kong. Uh, that were ongoing as, you know, evidence that the plug can be pulled very quickly and have real financial costs. So, you know, to, to me, I, you know, again, I, you know, I don't claim to be an expert on, on geopolitics uh, in the same way that a lot of our colleagues are, but if the Chinese government took exception to Maury's tweet, what are they going to do with respect to the WTA pulling out? Um, and it hits a, a much larger question that uh, a lot of sports properties are going to have to face. And, you know, how do you, which is how do you handle China? And is the revenue that you generate ultimately going to be worth the perceived, if not real difficulties of doing business there? And, you know, government policy has waxed and waned a bit Um, and it is one that it's a really interesting question that touches way more than the business side because it's, it, it hits a lot of human rights issues. It hits, uh, your ethics issues and where you stand and athlete activism and, and everything else. So, uh, you know, I I think it's, uh, I think it's a compelling issue, uh, and one that we will continue to keep, to keep our eye on. So, Yeah, I, I, I think in in the end, I mean, you, you said it right. It's it is the perfect uh, uh, blend of how serious are you about the social issues that you say you're concerned with. You know, from from leagues to individual athletes and otherwise. Do you understand what's going on here? And and this will be one to to watch to see what the final outcome is. Right now, we've got the IOC juxtaposed to, to WTA. WTA looking like they're taking the right steps. The ILC, um, uh, we're, we're not certain. They, they say they have enough information to make the decisions they're making, but we also know uh, there's a lot of money on the line with the, uh, the winter game, games coming up. 
Yeah, no question. So, and and that is one where for the for our listeners who are don't know what we're talking about why the IOC is involved in this, uh, there is a claim by the IOC that they have had not one but two conversations uh, with Peng Shui and that she seems to be okay. Um, you know, now that's how they have access, why they have access to her, um, while, where others maybe do not. Um, you know, that's another, that's another question. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of calls for real transparency on this. We haven't seen it yet. And again, we'll continue to, to monitor this. The other one can that from a, a you know, kind of human rights issue, not, not, not really anything compelling, but from a business perspective, clearly in the United States, really compelling is the major league baseball lockout. Uh, which we are in the earliest days of, uh, just came uh, across a couple days ago. And it's been a while. It's been a while since we had a work stoppage in Major League Baseball. Before we even get into the details of what each side is looking for, you want to explain briefly to our listeners who may not understand what a lockout even is? <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's been, it's been a quarter century since... We've seen a work stoppage. You, you said that exactly right. And um, without bringing you into the uh, sports law classroom, it, it's, kind of, it's a very interesting issue. And, and, and uh, nothing to do with, with sports about why this option exists. But basically what labor law allows is uh, for either side to say um, this, this deal is up and you can't work here anymore or we're not going to work here anymore. So most of us are familiar with the strike. That's where the workers say we're not showing up, but the lockout is the ownership management's version of the strike. Just saying uh, you can't work here anymore and everything is frozen and it triggers a whole lot of stuff. And this, this is what we'll, you know, in our brief time today, we won't get into it in a lot of detail, but it triggers a lot of possibilities and, a lot of the most intriguing sports law cases revolve around what happens after there's a lockout and, 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 and what happens after there's a strike. And a lot of this revolves around the collective bargaining agreement, which gives antitrust protections to agreements that otherwise would violate the antitrust laws. So, for example... If, if not for collective bargaining agreements, drafts essentially would be illegal. The, the idea that there's an agreement among owners, uh, there's a conspiracy to limit the number of teams that a player can negotiate with coming out of college or, or high school in, in, in the case of baseball. So the, so the interesting scenario that, that is set up uh, that we always think about when, when this happens and this is way down the road, and this is really is inside sports law class, is whether or not the union at some point chooses to decertify. And then all bets of the agreement are, are truly off. And what that tees up really is litigation um, to, to prevent things that were okay in the past from happening going forward. So, so that, there's, there's a whole long dance that's been teed up by virtue of this, this whole lockout, which uh, Rob Manfred, the commissioner of the MLB, uh, and I think, he, you know, I'm not a, 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 always in agreement with Rob Manfred. He did phrase it the right way. He said, we are doing this to accelerate a conversation that's been going 
going nowhere, to, to paraphrase what he said. And essentially what this does, it stops all opportunities for uh, income, for, for progress, uh, uh, for, uh, for having your photos up related to your team, uh, anything to do with being a part of Major League Baseball. So, uh, so it will accelerate conversations in some kind of way. Where, where they'll go, we don't know. Uh, but, but that's where we are right now. Uh, Scott is the uh, uh, backup professor in class. Did I, did I, <laughs> I miss anything on, on the basics of, of, of where we are and what's teed up by virtue of, of the, the lockout? And thank you for putting me on the spot for that. We didn't rehearse that at all. Yeah, not at all. So that was pretty good, Ken. The, uh, yeah, look, it's the management version of the strike right now. It's basically so all, a cessation of all player-related matters, uh, free agent signings, which, by the way, free agency, you know, a term limit before free agency w- would also be illegal. Um, and for our listeners that, that know enough about it but don't follow this on a, on a really close basis, I say, well, wait a second, isn't baseball immune from the antitrust laws? Right. And the answer is it largely is as a result of a trilogy of Supreme court cases, but the Kurt flood act, which was enacted in 1998 provides for uh, the players to be able to pursue antitrust remedies with respect to labor law matters. So it takes away the antitrust exemption as it applies to labor matters. So the players in baseball now have uh, the same rights available to them as the athletes in the other major sports leagues. So, you know, I, I think that's the, 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 the broad way of thinking about it, the labor law aspects of it for now that we need to touch. And then you get into the merits of the deal. Um, you know, in, in essence, if we're trying to boil this down into a, in a nutshell and kind of explain it to our listeners, just a way to tee it up before we get into much deeper conversations down the road, because I think you and I both expect, as do many observers, this lockout to last for some period of time. So I think, you know, it's likely that we will have an entire episode of the Sports Professors podcast dedicated to this uh, in in the not so distant future. But in in essence, the players want more money. Um, The owners want to, would like to keep the status quo largely intact, right? Players want changes to free agency eligibility. Um, They want to make a a shorter clock before they can get the bite of the apple that is free agency. Uh, They want salary arbitration to be uh, to be available to all players after two years instead of being available to most players after after three years. So accelerate that clock. They want less revenue sharing among the teams so that the higher spending teams can spend more on players rather than get and set the market rather than give it to the, uh, the, the lower revenue teams. Um, they want teams to stop tanking, which is very hard to, to stop. Uh, but they essentially want to reestablish the middle class of players. There's a, a average salaries are quite strong, although they've ticked down in the last couple of years. Um, but you know, both sides are making a lot of money pre-COVID. High average player salaries, above average market returns for the owners, and they'll lose even more money. You know, they lost money during COVID, obviously. Uh, They'll lose even more money if they miss games, which usually means that the work stoppage won't be crazy long and lead to uh, a whole lot of missed time. But there is a fairly decent amount of bad blood between the parties. Uh, The rhetoric, which we had not heard really any of, uh, has, you know, increased, not surprisingly, in the last last day or two. Um, You know, you've got... uh, 
you know, leadership who has challenges on, on each side that they would like to, um, you know, that they would like to not necessarily overcome, but that they would like to, to meet, uh, nothing out of the ordinary. Um, you know, but you know, I, I, my sense, um, is that early on, at least, unless one of the parties is really looking to change the fundamental economics of the sport, um, in which case all bets are off. I think this goes into spring training. I think we're looking at months and months uh, of this because there's no imposing deadline, right? There's nothing spurring these folks to, uh, to take any action at this moment in time. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I think you, you we have teed this up just right. It's it, the stage is now set. Uh, the drama is beginning. We're in act one and we're going to see where this goes. And we'll get a chance to discuss this along the way. So, so, Scott, as, as we close out, uh, what are you what are you looking at over the next couple of weeks? So, college football playoff games, uh, conference championship for sure. Uh, as an alumnus of the University of Michigan, I have a vested oh, here interest. Here we go again. In, in, in the outcome <laughs> of uh, of the Big Ten championship game tomorrow night. Um, so, as we record this on Friday, December third. Uh, so looking was, forward was, to I, Iowa's the other team. Uh, Iowa, a dangerous Iowa team, a Michigan team that needs to bounce back uh, after if, a really if, great win. But emotionally, that's a tough ask. And if Iowa wins, they don't get in. If Iowa wins, they don't get in. No. Yeah, okay. uh, you know, I, I, uh, and a lot of they need help. They would need help. Right. So, so looking at that, you know, Army Navy football game, just a, a fantastic, fantastic sporting event uh, happening this weekend. Um, the, uh, you know, the announcement of the, as I mentioned, of the college football playoff uh, foursome on, on, on Sunday um, and, you know, following Peng Shui, uh and, and looking to see uh, what comes out of that. Um, you know, baseball, I don't expect a whole lot of movement before our next conversation. Uh, a lot more rhetoric uh, that will come down the pike. How about you, Ken? Uh, the same. And, and the one other thing that I'm, I'm starting to at and, and think about, and, and we've got, uh, you know, a good friend, so the new president at, at, at Temple. It's, it's these, these jobs that aren't the kinds of jobs we were talking about. There, there's a head football coach job opening there. You know, I'm starting to wonder more and more about um, especially the African-American candidates that aren't getting jobs from the NFL, the Byron Leftwiches, the um, Eric Bienemies and those guys, whether or not they'll begin to look at those kinds of jobs. Um, uh, those, and, and because there is this, this whole, you know, everything's getting more tiered now. And what's, what's the value of these jobs? What's the value of having success with those programs? And, you know, a, a job, and I'm not advertising the temple job, but, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, and I'm sure the, the new administration doesn't want it to be that way. It's been a, it's been a good stepping stone job. So that could in fact be a path um, that, that some of these longtime coordinators could utilize. So, so begin to think about that as those jobs open up, who, who might begin to, to look there for those possibilities. But yeah, there, there's a lot of, lot, of, lot of great stuff going on. And this is the special sports time of year. This is the, we're getting into that season. Once you get to January, February, where it's just nonstop with things going on. So, so we'll have a lot to talk about. Absolutely. But for today, you've been listening to the Sports Professors Podcast. Scott Rosner, Ken Shropshire. See you next time. Thank you. 
The Sports Professors Podcast is brought to you by Global Sport Matters in collaboration with Columbia University. For more news and to sign up for our newsletter from Global Sport Matters, go to globalsportmatters.com. And for more from the Columbia University Sport Management Program, go to sps.columbia.edu slash sports. This episode was produced by me, Kendall Jones, Manager of Events and Programs at the Global Sport Institute. And huge thanks to our sound designer and editor, Sam Esparza and Big U Music. Global Sport Matters podcast is a production of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Our manager of marketing and communications is Crisal Valencia. Our digital communication specialist is Brendan Clean. And our marketing and event assistants are Natalie Skegan, Aiden Corrales, and Kate Nelson. Find more episodes by searching for the Global Sport Matters podcast and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Stay up to date with the Global Sport Matters team by following us on Twitter. We're at Global Sport MTRS.